Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We want to stick with WeWork withdrawing its initial public offering perspectives. After a tumultuous month, we are seeing some movement in the bonds going lower uh, now uh, at their lowest levels. Wow, at 87 cents uh, and, and a quarter uh, per on the dollar. And this you know, comes at a time when borrowing costs are supposedly low, not for WeWork. Joining us now, Shanali Basak, uh, who covers all things uh, finance for us here at Bloomberg. I'm wondering, this doesn't come as, as a surprise. No, no. I mean, this, this is something that's been known. Exactly. So it, it's not a shocker, right? I mean, w that they were going to delay their IPO. The question that's looming over everyone's minds are two things is when will this happen? Will it ever happen? And how are they going to raise money without it happening? So well, what is the thinking here? Because I know that they, uh, they had a big uh, debt financing con that was going to was contingent upon them going public. That obviously is not going to happen. And as Lisa's pointed out earlier, they are going to need cash in the relative near yes. term. Is there a plan out there for this company? So right now they're in talks for um, multiple things potentially happening here. Uh, SoftBank may make another equity injection, but uh, you know, with the FT actually reporting that it could be more than a billion dollars. I mean, that that is huge. Remember, yep. the interesting thing about SoftBank making another injection is we're waiting right now on whether SoftBank is going to write down the stake of their we work investment. And SoftBank is already bleeding right now from a lot of different investments that are that are troubled right now. Just to put this into perspective, when Jeffries took a write down on their WeWork stake of less than 1%, it was over $100 million. And so the WeWork write down with a stake of 40% almost, maybe a little more when you count how much they have in um, convertible shares, it could be very significant. So how are they going to make another equity injection when they're already writing down their existing stake? Could be a really interesting tension. Another interesting tension is what's going on in the C-suite at J.P. Morgan, yes. uh, which I believe was going to be the lead banker on the IPO. Yes. How big of a liability is this for them? So think about how many aspects they have connections to WeWork, right? They have the, the it's it's something like a margin loan. So Adam Newman took out a loan based on his, his stock, hundreds of millions of dollars led by J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan also is responsible for the mortgages for Adam Newman's own homes. They also have exposure to a lot of the buildings that WeWork is exposed to. And so they have so, and, and, and that's on top of helping lead this loan as well as the IPO that's not happening. So those are fees you're not going to see for JP Morgan in their upcoming earnings report because the IPO obviously never happened. But then you also have to wonder how these other moving parts affects JP Morgan their own investors are also invested in early WeWork stock. Some of those investors have told me that they're not thrilled with the right ups and the right downs that may be um, embedded in JP Morgan funds that have WeWork shares in them. So broaden it out from JP Morgan and, and WeWork here. I mean, there's been a lot of big disappointing deals here in 2019, Uber, Lyft, and just on and on the list goes. And this was supposed to be the year when the bankers got fat and happy and IPO investors got fat and happy. It hasn't worked out that way. Has there been any meaningful pushback on the bankers and saying, 
you guys just haven't done a very good job this year. Totally. Okay. So guess, get this. Tom, tomorrow is the day in Silicon Valley that all the big venture capitalists will be meeting and the bankers are not invited because <laughs> they are looking to change the IPO model as we know it. They don't like the initial pop that you got in an IPO and they certainly don't like the first day fall you get <laughs> lately with um, Smile Direct Club and, and Peloton were two of the very rare companies to fall in their first day of trading that are that big and raise that much money. How much is this the banker's fault? How much is this the venture capitalist's fault for valuing these companies as highly as they have? Well, if you talk to the venture capitalists, what they're going to do is they're going to deflect the responsibility, not just away from the venture capitalists, but over to SoftBank, which has been really inflating some of these um, Silicon Valley valuations. And, you know, there's a lot of people that say a lot of these new big fundraisers we're seeing is in response to SoftBank really changing the dynamics of the market. Lisa, you've covered this a lot, too. But uh, the bankers are not without blame here for certain. The next big one that I think we were waiting on was Airbnb. Yes. What's the status of that? TBD. Okay. The thing that's nice, <laughs> the thing that's nice about Airbnb is that it does turn a profit. Uh, it is kind of a darling. And you know, you can think about it. When the IPO market's bad, it's not that it closes up completely. People still want listings, and so they're going to look for the best possible ones. And so I think Airbnb still dangles a little bit of hope in front of investors and in front of, um, in front of, in front of banks as well. Shanali Basak, thank you so much for joining us. Shanali's investment banking reporting uh, for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, bringing us up to date on that news that WeWork uh, is plans to withdraw its IPO prospectus as expected, but still a, uh, a shocking formality for a company that just a couple of weeks ago was looking to raise you know, a, a, a huge amount at a very high valuation. A lot of questions now. Number one, where will WeWork raise money? Yep. Number two, what does this do to investment bankers in a sort of tumultuous year generally for IPOs as Shanali was, uh, was, was putting out there? And number three, for SoftBank, at what point do they just say, forget it, we're gonna let you fail? <laughs> exactly right. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Brian Chapata. Brian is a debt markets columnist. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Brian, I know you're out with a column, and you're basically saying it could be a shaky time for the bond market, but investment-grade issuers are just flooding the market here. So what's going on in your side of the credit markets? Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating to see that 127 investment-grade bond deals cleared the market uh, as of the end of last week which is a record high. Uh, no month has ever seen so many investment-grade companies come and borrow. And it's just, it re it's really surprising because you saw all this different uh, tumultuous activity in various corners of the markets, but it was steady as she goes, I guess, uh, for corporate bonds. And even though they're down a little bit this month, uh, first monthly loss this year uh, because of yields rising, uh, still outperforming treasuries and still up 13% year to date, a pretty strong, pretty strong year. 
So this is this is such a fascinating area because there seems to be a flood of cash coming from overseas into the U.S. investment-grade bond market trying to get some yield, uh, since there is still some yield in the United States. That said, Morgan Stanley uh, crunched the data and found that liabilities, that the amount of debt uh, versus income, have reached their highest level in the investment-grade corporate uh, sector since 2009. And they were talking about how 40% of all investment-grade issuers now have debt levels more uh, equivalent to junk ratings, even though they are still rated with the with the top tiers of credit grades. Should people be concerned? Well, I guess when I see that, the, oh, the pushback I always have, the thing I, I always want to see, and maybe maybe there is some data out on that, is sort of, okay, the debt levels are high, but what are the borrowing costs? Because Yes, it's the highest since 2009, but you have to sort of look at where yield levels are now relative to where they were uh, 10 years ago, because you can borrow, you can refinance, and yes, you have higher debt, but it's it's cheaper to borrow. Right. So, I mean, sort of the question is the corporate structure. I mean, is it is it economically uh, more feasible and, and, and better to, to actually uh, have, have some debt if you can borrow it? Three percent. I'll push back on that. Okay. I think that you know you're right that net interest costs are coming down, right? Just simply math because rates are lower and there is so much money and interest coming into this market. That said, the reason why leverage picked up to such a degree, according to this Morgan Stanley analysis, was twofold. It was because they're borrowing more and their revenues are coming down, right? They're the extra debt that they are borrowing is not helping them boost their profits. Yeah. And so at what point is debt for debt's sake really going to potentially crimp companies as we head into potentially another downturn? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair... I mean, I think everything that we sort of know about this cycle and what companies have been doing, effectively taking on more debt, doing more share buybacks to boost their equity price, I mean, all those things are not what you would ideally like to see. But I guess the question going forward that people have to think about is what else do you do in an economy that's growing but not growing that fast? I mean, it seems like all of these executives sort of have come to the decision that this is the way that we go. We, we take out debt to maybe finance mergers and acquisitions or even just to buy back our shares. So what are we seeing in terms of credit quality out there? Are we seeing any signs of a deterioration in credit quality? Well, I think that the high yield market is where you're starting to see a lot of investor pushback and some deals had to be shelved that aren't getting done. Uh, I mean, there have been downgrades. Um, I think that Tupperware was the one that was mentioned uh, in the Bloomberg News story today uh, being cut to junk. Um, But overall, uh, downgrades are happening, but not quite at the clip, I think, that people were really worried about. Uh, The question will be, obviously, if for some reason the economy gets worse, uh, we head into even even more uh, slowdown. If that will change, I uh, want to shift gears a little bit to the repo market since we are reaching quarter end, and this has been the time that people really were worried about. We are seeing uh, overnight repo costs go up. How big of a concern is that? I think a lot of people are sort of thinking that okay, the repo market is a problem area, and the Fed doesn't have a quick fix. They're in there doing their temporary repo operations for now, and it'll be generally okay. We'll muddle through now, but I think everyone's really focused on what will the Fed come out with uh, in their after their October meeting. What sort of permanent solution is there? Are we going back to buying more Treasuries uh, in an attempt to sort of flood the system with more reserves? 
or will they have some standing repo facility? But it sounds like they're not as close to that as people might expect. So it sounds like they might go back to sort of organic growth of the balance sheet. Brian Chapata, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Brian Chapata is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. You can read all of his columns at O-P-I-N, go on the Bloomberg Terminal or Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Uh, his columns are great. So are those of his colleague and you can catch them all there. Let's shift gears to what's been going on in Washington, D.C., some of the political turmoil with respect to the impeachment probe and the hearings last week. How much does that trickle into markets? Jeff Powell, managing partner at Polaris Greystone Financial Group, uh, joining us now by phone from San Francisco. Jeff, how much did you care and pay attention to the political tumult that we saw over the past week? Well, I mean, obviously, we have to pay attention to uh, headline news and obviously something like an impeachment inquiry is a very serious thing. Um, personally, I don't think that a impeachment will occur under these circumstances, but it certainly plays into sentiment of marketplace, and it certainly complicates what's going on with our trade negotiations with China. So it, it's a very important thing for us to continue to track uh, progress of what's going on there and also the impacts that it has in other areas of the marketplace. Yeah, Jeff, I've actually been, I guess, a little bit surprised that the market has kind of taken this news in stride. Um, and But I guess the question, you know, investors are just trying to get a sense of where could this really hit me in terms of the economy? And I guess you mentioned one area is trade, and that's clearly been the big driver of this market over the last year or so. So give us your thoughts on kind of how you think this may impact trade negotiations, if at all. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think back to May, when we heard Donald Trump tweet uh, about how he was uh, unhappy with the Fed, and if the Fed had been more aggressive about cuts, that we would have as strong of an economy as China had. And all of a sudden, we had China rethinking what was going on with our trade negotiations. So uh, Premier Xi, uh, obviously, is a lifetime position for him. Uh, we obviously don't have lifetime positions for our uh, leaders. And so when you look at it, I believe the Chinese kind of negotiate on kind of a different calendar than we do. So uh, they may be in a situation where they try to outweigh, uh, outweigh President Trump uh, under these circumstances, uh, but it certainly weakens his position uh, with trade negotiations with China. Do you trade on headlines? No, we don't at all. I mean, but I mean, obviously, you know, things, uh, things spiral. And so uncertainty is a major factor. I mean, if you just look at what happened in fourth quarter of last year, almost everything that was going on during fourth quarter was sentiment-driven. Everybody was worried about the potential of, a, uh, of having an economy that was weakening or even going into a recession uh, when there was really no evidence of it. Uh, we had a strong economy. We had really strong earnings, yet the markets dropped 20% during that time period. So really, we're looking at headlines and their impact I mean, you can run into circumstances that become self-fulfilling prophecies where you have uh, people become more and more worried about what's going on economically as a result of headlines, which would be a driving factor for us to make a decision uh, to get more defensive in our portfolios. So, Jeff, we are, um, you know, at or near this the all-time high for the S&P 500. You talked a little bit about uh, getting defensive. 
How are you thinking about your positioning right here, given where we are in the economic cycle, given where the Fed is? Are you taking on additional risk here, or or are you getting more defensive? It's kind of funny you bring that up, but it's it's more of a neutral stance right now, uh, more of a wait and see. Um, when we talk about economic cycles, I mean, I have a very hard time really gauging that. I mean, we talk about how long the economy has been expanding, yet you've had government intervention going on until the end part of 2014. We dealt with three different quantitative easing time periods in which you had the government stepping in and, and really pressing yields down very low as a result of quantitative easing. Uh, how do you gauge uh, true economic expansion uh, when the government was being was involved basically for seven of the years of that expansion. So it's challenging. It's, it's very challenging to sit there and, and really step in hard with this. I think that we are going to see uh, a, a, a smattering of disappointments going into earnings season, uh, especially with what's going on with tariffs and the trade war that we have going on. Uh, I think it's hard to get really, really aggressive with, uh, within the markets. Uh, based upon that. So we're going in, we're being, uh, we're market weight with what we would typically be for a client and their risk levels and so on. Uh, that being said, we are lower beta stocks more so than we would be in a normal circumstance with the allocations that we're in. Are you boosting your allocation to cash? We did about a month ago. Uh, we're holding uh, tight with what we are ha now. We have uh, our laundry list of names that we like, and we're looking for uh, the right opportunity to step back into the market a little bit more heavily and get into an overweight position uh, should the need arise. So, Jeff, the, one of the issues I've heard about getting a little bit more cautious is utilities, REITs, you know, consumer staples, by historical standards, they're not cheap. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And so, I mean, we are uh, market weight in all three of those categories, but we are not overweighted into them. Uh, so it is something that is a little bit more challenging to sit there and and chase that kind of performance. I mean, if you look at what utilities have done in particular, I mean, they've had an amazing run, an amazing year for that particular category, but you're absolutely correct. It makes it very challenging to go into an area of the marketplace that is considered to be expensive, even though it's considered to be defensive. Jeff Powell, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff's a managing partner for Polaris at Greystone Financial Group uh, based in San Francisco. Jeff joined us uh, via phone uh, from San Francisco, giving us his thoughts on the market. A lot of workplaces talk about the difficulties of hiring qualified people or frankly hiring people in general. There is a question of what role artificial intelligence can play in that. Joining us now is Ayal Grayevsky. He's chief executive officer of Maya Systems, uh, joining us from San Francisco. Ayal, can you just talk a little bit about what Maya Systems is? Yeah, so Maya Systems is a recruitment automation platform using conversational AI. So we built this conversational AI assistant named Maya who engages with candidates through natural language and helps guide them through the recruiting process, helps source passive leads for hiring teams, and manage many different phases of the process. So I'll just give us a sense of, you know, what types of companies use your system? 
Yeah, so we work with some of the largest enterprises and staffing companies in the world. So six of the eight largest staffing businesses, as well as organizations like Deloitte, L'Oreal, AB InBev, uh, very large enterprises like Singapore Airlines that leverage the technology to both manage their talent pools as well as automate and, and guide candidates through the recruiting process. What's the goal? I mean, what, why did you create this company? Yeah, so what I learned from the many years working as a recruiter is that the recruiting process is still wildly manual. And you see recruiters spend about 75% of their time on what we call repetitive tasks, which really slows them down. And later, when I actually went out and started searching for jobs early in my career, I, I applied about 40 jobs, heard back from two companies. It's incredibly frustrating. 85% of applications fall into the black hole. You have about a 57 to 1 chance of getting a job when you apply. So it's a very inefficient process. And what we saw was an opportunity to build a technology that can really engage and communicate with people at a large scale so that we can learn about those individuals. And then in building that profile and understanding their interests, we can help guide them and, and convert them into their next job. So uh, we really saw that unique opportunity to bridge the communications gap. It's interesting. You know, I think the LinkedIn has really emerged as a recruiting tool. Give us a sense of kind of how you either compete with or complementary to a LinkedIn type of service. Yeah, so we would be viewed complementary in that LinkedIn is very much a marketplace. And of course, they have a platform that organizations can um, use to source and engage passive candidates and and so forth. What we are is a, a really an enterprise SaaS business. We integrate into our clients' systems and we uh, support um, recruitment across many different sources. So LinkedIn might be one of the sources that are generating leads where Maya might engage that candidate and convert them through the funnel. Uh, and then of course, Maya, the really interesting thing about what we're doing is we can use the technology to engage our customers' database of candidates, people that they've engaged with in the past. Many of our customers have millions of candidates that they've acquired over the years, and Maya can really engage, re-engage, and, and surface leads directly within your existing pool. So um, in that way, sometimes we reduce the reliance on external sources like LinkedIn. So given the fact that you you probably have conversations with a lot of different companies that are trying to tailor this to their specific needs, are you getting any sense that there is a shift in what employers are looking for in terms of the skills that will determine whether a candidate will be successful and will stick around uh, versus not? Yeah, so um, there's absolutely shifts in, in perspective and in, in how employers are making decisions on candidates. And, and that's probably going to uh, change on an employer to employer basis. Um, you know, really our goal as a, as a product is, is to really learn and understand the candidate and, and surface those insights that uh, might be hidden, uh, not on the resume, not in the LinkedIn profile. You know, these are insights that typically are surfaced from like a phone screen. And we'll help build that profile, that enriched profile and understanding of the candidate as it pertains to the job requirements um, really based on the, the uh, criteria that the recruiter is looking for. And then we'll, we'll let the recruiter make that educated decision. But yeah, companies are going to very much differ in how they think about candidates. Another cool thing that we're doing is we're, we're really understanding how candidates are engaging. 
um, and, and how other candidates in the past that we've screened or that we've engaged with are performing so we can help our customers make predictions that are really grounded in data and, and, and grounded in analytics um, over time. Eyal Grajewski, thank you so much for joining us. Just fascinating discussion. Eyal is the Chief Executive Officer for Maya Systems, joining us on the phone from San Francisco, talking about the, the recruiting process, uh, the hiring process, the retaining talent process, and how artificial intelligence and other technologies can help uh, recruiters, uh, companies, uh, and candidates themselves uh, find a better fit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.